Morning, Christ Church. I have, uh, for the past couple of weeks, I'd been on vacation uh, with my family, and so um, just showed up uh, really last weekend and was able to attend church, but this has been my first full week back in the office, and then coming back to, uh, to preach, and I've missed Christ Church. It's wonderful vacation, though, and just lovely time away. We went to the beach and um, spent a couple weeks there. I actually took the, the kids out deep sea fishing, and we caught some sharks that were maybe this big, but I mean, I'm a fisherman, so perhaps you need photographic evidence. We caught sharks, though. Um, and then we went up to, to Nashville, where our family's from, and it was one of those uh, trips where all the cousins are together, and it seemed like there's just a sleepover every single night at someone's house. And we made it up to Kentucky, which many of you know, I was a campus minister for 13 years up at the University of Kentucky. And, um, and up there, there was sort of an impromptu gathering of all the staff that I had ever worked with or supervised or led. And so we had about uh, 50 or so people come together. And I told Lexi, my wife, what so amazed me was that these people keep growing. You know, I left them, um, and they were in their young 20s and mid-20s, and, um, and now they're, they're older, obviously, but some of them are married, and they have children, and some of them have two children, and one of our, our old um, uh, babysitters even uh, has two children and, um, and is pregnant with her third, uh, even in the four and a half years since I've been gone. I thought that's how she's been spending her pandemic, and so good for her. <laughs> For, it's just wonderful, though, to see just light, the, the way the life was continuing to grow and flourish there. But on the trip, one thing I did, I had this sense uh, from the Lord, this invitation to know him more. And so one of the practices I did was every night before I went to bed, I read the gospel reading we just heard. That story of Martha and Mary, Jesus coming into the home, coming into Martha's home. Mary sitting in the position of a disciple at Jesus's feet. I just read this and had felt like the Lord was speaking to me in a number of ways. And I, this is not going to be a sermon necessarily on that text. You've heard probably plenty of sermons on that scripture. One thing I think we would look at and all recognize, though, is in the presence of God, Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. She sat and would not be taken away from the presence of Jesus. This summer, we're preaching out of the Psalms. We're not going to go through every Psalm, but we're looking at representations of different Psalms and uh, sort of representatively uh, what the Psalter teaches us. And you know the Psalms, um, we don't actually read them or just say them. Every week we stand, we pray them together. They are the prayer book of the church. They are how the, the church learns to pray um, in all seasons is going through the Psalms. This is not our invention. It's not an Anglican invention. Uh, the whole church over the past 2,000 years has looked to the Psalter, the, the book of Psalms, to teach us how to pray. And this action of Mary to sit at the feet of Jesus, to be with Jesus, this has to be like one of the main questions of the Christian life, which is this, Lord, how do I sit at your feet? How do I truly worship you? How do I come into sustained fellowship with you? God, how do I live in your presence? Almost every Christian I ever know wants to ask that question, how do I live close to God? How do I go into your presence? And this is how, this is the question Psalm 15 wants to answer. Psalm 15, if you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 15. We'll be uh, staying through there for the rest of the sermon. And um, it begins with this question, Psalm 15, verse 1. Lord, who may dwell in your tabernacle? Who may abide upon your holy hill? You know, the tabernacle, um, it is the tent of meeting. It's where the ark of the, the covenant was, where God's presence was said to be. This is later the spot uh, where the temple will be built. Um, and the holy hill we're talking about is Mount Zion. 
If you've ever been to Jerusalem before, you know it is all valleys all around, and it rises up onto a hill, and then it rises just a little bit higher to Mount Zion, where the temple would have been built. The highest point of the city wasn't the king's palace, but it was the temple, the presence of God. Lord, who may dwell in your tabernacle? Who may abide upon your holy hill? And I love how Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. He gets at the heart of it. God, who gets invited to dinner at your place? How do we get on your guest list? And that is really the question of life. In fact, I would argue that every, every human is asking that question in some form. Every philosophy, every spiritualism is asking, how do we get into the presence of the good life? How do we get into the presence of God? If God is able to be known, how do we get to be with him? This question, how do you, we dwell with you, God? And that's what Psalm 15 wants to take on. This is what's called an entrance psalm. An entrance psalm, it's preparing you to go into worship. Uh, It seems like this is how the psalm would have been used as people are preparing to enter up into the tabernacle. And maybe you have a habit that you uh, do before you enter into worship. Maybe some of you come early, come maybe five minutes early into the sanctuary, and you just sit and you want to still your heart and say, Lord, I'm ready to enter into worship of you. Maybe others of you, uh, as you're preparing on Sunday to come uh, to church, you, you might at home Spend time in prayer, centering yourself, or taking some activity to say, like, Lord, I'm offering my heart to you. One of the things I do every week is actually when I put this robe on, um, and you know, by the way, everyone up here who's wearing a robe is meant to be a reflection, an image of the whole body of Christ who's dressed in Christ's righteousness. As I put on my robe, I pray, Lord, today your righteousness shine, not mine, as I go into worship. This habit that you have of preparing to enter worship, entering into the presence of God. So imagine this. The psalm is written about 900 years before Christ. So this is quite a while ago. But imagine you're back in that time. And you are walking with the people of God up the hill towards Jerusalem, up towards this tabernacle. You're, you're walking with others. You're coming out of daily life. You have this expectation of going up to meet God on top of the mountain, Mount Zion, of the festivity and the joy of meeting him up there. And as you're going up and as you're going higher and higher, someone begins to chant maybe this psalm, Lord, who may dwell in your tabernacle? Who may abide upon your holy hill? And the whole crowd, the whole throng begins to chant it together. Psalm 15, who may come into the tabernacle of God? Who can dwell here on this holy hill, preparing you to meet this living God? And this is how Psalm 15 answers who the question, who can come into the presence of God? Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. That is a person of integrity and blamelessness. First of all, entering God's presence involves integrity. There's this deep internal alignment that you have between what you believe about the world, what you believe about God, and how you speak and live in the world. Who you are in private is the same as who you are in public. There is no secret self to you. You are um, always the same. In fact, this is one of our uh, family values. We have five family values for just our family, ways of what does it mean to to follow Jesus in this world and, and live as part of our family. And integrity is one of the, the, the values saying who we are and our beliefs about Jesus internally. It's who we are externally. There's just always a consistency in who we are. And this phrase, walk blamelessly, it's actually a callback to Psalm 1. You remember Psalm 1 is like 
the very first psalm that says, here's what the whole book of the psalms is about. It says, blessed is the person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but that person's delight is in the law of the Lord. And they meditate on it day and night. They're, they live blamelessly, but they are always concerned with God's law, with keeping it and with honoring him. It goes on to verse 3. The person who dwells in God's presence is someone whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, casts no slurs on others. In other words, someone who speaks in love towards others. You remember uh, James, the brother of Jesus, spends quite a bit of time talking about the tongue in James 3. He talks about how the, all the beasts of the world have been tamed. They have bits and bridles, but humans can't seem to tame their tongues. Or he says, great ships sail upon the sea, and just a small rudder can direct the direction of it. Or even a forest fire is just started by, the, the, by one spark. And he said, that's what the, the tongue is like. And you might wonder, why so much attention on the tongue? Why so much attention to our words? And the reason is because our words are a window to a person's heart. What you think about another person is what you end up saying about the person. How you think in your heart towards a friend or a neighbor or mother-in-law or whoever the case may be is how you end up speaking about that person. And so there's, again, an integrity of do you speak truthfully about all people? Do you, do you speak the same to their face as you do when you're not around them? Do you speak, would you speak differently if it was your boss and you were talking to that person or if you were talking about your boss or a coworker? Is there a difference in your speech there? Psalm goes on, in this person's sight, the wicked is rejected, but he honors those who fear the Lord. In other words, the person who dwells with God discerns what is good and vile and then acts justly. See, this verse is speaking about discernment. The true worshiper of God is able to discern between holy and unholy, between righteous and unrighteous, which is a definite need of the day. One who has sworn to do no wrong and not take back his word. There's an honesty here that is costly. It's like sort of costly honesty. Once you've said something, you commit to doing it. You know, there's probably been many times that you've said to a friend, oh, I'm, I'm there for you. I'll be there for you. Call me if you need me, something like that. And then one night, maybe around 10 or 11 o'clock at night, right after you've brushed your teeth and just gotten yourself laid in to tuck to bed, you get a text message or a phone call from a friend that says, hey, right now, I need to talk. Something's going on. And, and you're thinking, I know I said that to them, but is it really, like right now, as I'm falling asleep, do I need to get out of the bed and respond to them? Someone who keeps their word. He does not give his money in hope of gain, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. This means he lives as a just steward with deep generosity. There's this lifestyle of generosity, recognizing all comes from God, and so we freely give, freely giving to others, recognizing none is yours. And then the psalm ends with these words, just kind of like the coda of the whole thing, how it closes down. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Whoever lives this life of integrity, this life of blamelessness, of not speaking slurs or gossip against neighbor, of truthful language, of honesty that is always committed to anything that it is said, of generosity, this radical generosity. Whoever can live such a life will never be shaken. In other words, will live, will dwell in the presence of God. Nothing can knock you out of God's presence. 
And you might notice, um, what is this psalm not requiring for you to enter the presence of God? Like, what is not listed in Psalm 15? The psalmist doesn't say that coming into God's presence requires that you belong to a certain tribe of Israel, you know? Levites, you guys can come in. Tribe of Gad, you stand over there. You know, there's nothing of, of that sort. doesn't say you have to be a certain gender, that men, you come in, women, not so much. doesn't say that your marital status is relevant to coming to worship God. The only thing that counts is this. Are you blameless? Have you lived with integrity? Have you kept God's law towards loving your neighbor? Is there an integration of recognizing that all of life is worship and every decision matters and you offer all of it up to God? If you do that, the only thing that this psalm says really counts is holiness. Have you lived a holy life? So put yourself back into the position of the original uh, people coming up the mountain. As you're coming up together and you're all beginning to chant this psalm, you're, you're climbing the mountain, getting closer and closer to Mount Zion, and there, all of a sudden, the, the tabernacle starts to peek into view. You can see the top of the tent. And as you get closer and closer up to the top of the mountain, there's a figure standing out in front who's wearing robes, and he's got this breastplate on with jewels all around it and probably a long beard, and there's these... Um, bands kind of wrapped around his head and his wrist, these things called phylacteries. And so you see him standing there, and as you're walking closer and closer, you recognize this is the great high priest, and he's standing at the gate of the temple, the, the tabernacle itself, kind of admitting people in. And he comes to you. Can you come in? Can you dwell? Can you enter into this place, this holy hill? Have you kept a blameless life, a life of integrity? Have you lived holy? If so, enter and come on in. You might begin to wonder, have I lived a good enough life to enter into this tabernacle? Have I lived a holy enough life to dwell with God? And maybe if you start to wonder that, you start to feel the tension I felt this week. God, who can ascend your hill? Who can dwell in your presence? See, part of the work for a preacher every week is, um, is not just studying a psalm or studying a part of the Bible, reading commentaries, anything like that, but it's beginning to live live this particular scripture and say, God, this is your holy and good word. And so how do I live it? How do I begin to let this get a hold of me and become life in me this week? And as I did that this week and I was praying and studying through this psalm, I had this recognition, I can't live out Psalm 15. I can't actually keep the requirements that this psalm says of coming into God's presence. It actually caused anxiety for me on Thursday night, just a deep pain in my chest. God, who can come? into your presence, who can come and live with you. I took the psalm to my wife, and I said, look, Lexi, would you read this with me? I just want you to read it with me. Sit on the couch next to me. Let's read this psalm, and you tell me if you find anything, I'll just say interesting in the psalm. Tell me if you find anything interesting. So we read the psalm. We're sitting on a couch in our living room, reading the psalm together, and we get to the end of it, and I say, now, what did you think about that? Did you find anything interesting or maybe even odd in that psalm? And she said, well, yeah, I mean, there's that part about verse 4, like we're supposed to reject the wicked, and doesn't, I mean, Jesus says, love our enemies, so I'm, I don't know what he means there. And with generosity, how much, it doesn't quite say how much you're supposed to be generous. And I say, I get all that. I understand everything you're talking about. Okay, there's, we can nitpick about some of the stuff in the middle of the psalm. But as a whole, if you look at the whole psalm, doesn't anything seem like a little off or odd to you? And she said, oh, well, I mean, 
I don't think I can do this. Is that what you mean? Like, I can't actually live this psalm. And I was like, yes, yes, that, that exact thing. That's the feeling I have. I can't live this. And so you're admitting also you can't live Psalm 15. You feel this tension that I'm talking about. She said, yeah, of course. I see that too. I said, okay, thank you. Now let's, I need to go and figure out how to write a sermon about that then. You know, there are over 100 quotations of the Psalms in the New Testament. Over 100 times the Psalms are quoted in the New Testament by Jesus, by the apostles, but never once is Psalm 15 quoted. I read multiple commentaries this week on the Psalms, and in three of them, Psalm 15 wasn't even mentioned, wasn't even addressed, was left off. And I wondered, why is this? And I'm starting to realize it's because this Psalm is radioactive. What I mean by that is when you read Psalm 15, it ex- you are exposed to the holiness of God that you cannot keep. You are exposed to a holiness of God that you can't possibly keep, and yet you're invited into his presence. So you can't help but feel this tension, I'm invited to be with God and live with him, and yet I can't live a life worthy of him, worthy of dwelling with him. I was reading through... Um, some comments Tim Keller wrote about uh, Psalm 15, and he picks up on this same theme of who is able to live on this hill and then recognizing not me. And he, wrote, he writes a prayer. This is a prayer in response to Psalm 15. He says, Lord, the sins of my tongue are so many. Forgive me for talking too much because of pride, for talking too little because of fear, for not telling the truth because of pride and fear, for words that are harsh and cutting, for hurting others' reputations through gossip. Would you purify my words? With your word. Amen. And now we're closing in, I think, on what is one of the main temptations Christians face. And I would say Christians especially in the 21st century and Christians especially in Austin. And the the, the, the question is this. Does holiness actually matter? Does our striving towards holiness matter at all? Does God actually care how we live? Is that important to him? Because if, perhaps you might say, if God is a God of love and he loves me anyway, then what difference does it make how I live my life? If he forgives me anyway, why does holiness matter? Maybe some of you have seen the TV show, uh, The Good Place. And I won't ask you to raise your hand because it's, um, it's a fairly crass show. I hear one person laughing. <laughs> it is a very crass show. And so um, it's, it's difficult. I'm about to use a, uh, an example where I'm not necessarily endorsing that everyone go out and watch this show. But I have seen all four seasons myself. Um, and so in The Good Place, here it's really interesting. It's about these four humans who die. And they, they suddenly they wake up in The Good Place. There's a lot of um, twists and turns, and I'm, I'm not going to offer any spoilers, but the basic idea is that in your life, if you do more good than bad in the world, you get the good points. And if you get enough good points, you go to the good place. This is an age-old idea. If I do more good than I do bad, if I get the good points, I go to the good place. And at some point, a couple of seasons in, they ask the judge of the world, who's played by Maya Rudolph, They say, when was the last time that someone actually got into the good place just based on points alone? Like, when when is the last time that happened? And she begins looking through her files and researching on the computer, and they realize it's been hundreds of years since anyone's actually come into the good place on point system alone. No one's been able to, by keeping their points, to get into the good place in a very, very long time. And for, as a show, it's interesting, it has some interesting ideas about the afterlife, certainly a lot that I disagree with and a lot that I question and think is interesting and provocative, but on the issue of sin, 
I think the good place gets it quite right. Because they recognize no one is able to live a life of integrity. No one's able to live a life that is blameless. No one's able to live a life where they actually don't speak ill of their neighbor behind their back or offer some sort of slurs of someone that they disagree with. No one's able to consistently love generously well. No one's getting enough points to go to the good place in the show. Who can ascend the hill to dwell with God? And the answer is no one. Humans are inescapably self-focused, which is the origin of sin. That we look to ourselves to define morality rather than looking to God himself. And here's how we're told typically to resolve this tension. And here's where I'd say that the temptation comes in. On the one hand, our culture and various forms of liberal Christianity say the answer is God does not care about holiness. He loves everyone equally, and it simply doesn't matter how you live, how you treat others. Our culture says live however you want because God doesn't really exist, or if he exists, he's irrelevant. Some forms of liberal Christianity say just live however you want because God loves you and he, he doesn't care. He loves you so much he doesn't actually care how you live. That's on the one hand. It's actually the same outcome. But then there's, on the other hand, there's some conservative forms of Christianity that take a different approach and say God does care about holiness and there, are, there is a moral code he gives. And here are the really important rules that you must follow. And if you follow these really important rules... Then he likes you, you are blessed, you are part of the group. But the rest of the rules, there's many others that are often left out, things often associated with um, greed and material wealth and, um, and creation care that often get left out of the picture. And so he says, you, you just really need to keep this certain set of rules, this sort of set of legalism, and then God loves you. And the problem is that both of these groups are making the same mistake. They're lowering the standard of holiness. One group by saying it doesn't actually matter, God doesn't have a standard. The other group by saying only part of it matters, but not the whole thing. Both end up rewriting the law in their own image, which is the original sin of pride. But here's what authentic Christianity says. It says we never lessen the standard of holiness. We never lessen or diminish God's holy law. Who can ascend the hill and dwell in God's presence? Who can live a fully holy life? And in light of Psalm 15, the answer is none of us can live that life. There's one who can. There's one who did. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the true human who lived a perfect life of integrity, who was blameless before the law, who spoke with love towards his neighbors, discerned evil in his midst, and gave his own life generously for our sins on the cross. You cannot climb the hill to go into the presence of God, but there is another who has climbed the cross to bring you into the presence of God. You see, one of the ways the church has taught that we are supposed to read the Psalms, how you pray the Psalms, is that every single Psalm is pointing towards Jesus. When you read the Psalms, they are all about him. And when you're reading a psalm, when you're praying a psalm, it is either prophesying something that is going to happen to him, or it is spoken from the voice of Jesus, or it is his body, the church, reading the psalm. We read what I would say Christocentrically. We read the psalms with Christ at the center. Psalm 15 is about who is the true worshiper, and the answer is only Jesus Christ. Only he is the true worshiper who can dwell in the presence of God, who can enter into the presence of God. 
We approach the presence of the tabernacle only now through faith in Jesus. Not of our own, not of our own trying, not of our own striving, not of our own marks of impressment. You could take any sort of category. You know this so well. You could take any category that you think makes you worthy in life and hold it up to God's holy standard and realize how far you really are. You would have the same experience as I did this week of trying to to see, can I live out Psalm 15, resulting in an anxiety saying, I can't live this out. I can't do it on my own, but someone else must be able to rescue me. Jesus did, and through faith in him, I can now come to dwell in the presence of God. Which leads us back to this question, law and holiness. How does law and holiness go together? If we can't keep the law, does it matter that we live these holy lives? Does it make a difference whether I try to be holy? Does it make a difference how I live my life? And here's what I would say is the whole tenor, the whole pitch of Scripture is this. You can be declared holy through the work of Jesus on the cross. What he's done, he has gone into the presence of God. You remember Hebrews 9 says Jesus didn't enter a copy of the sanctuary. He entered the real thing into the presence of Jesus through faith in him. You can be declared holy. But God doesn't want to just declare you holy. He wants you to become holy yourself. So he sends you his Holy Spirit so that as you begin to cooperate every single day with the decisions of your life, you're making choices empowered by the Spirit to become a being that is a person of integrity, a blameless person before the law, a person who speaks with love and care and generosity, a just person, one who lives extravagantly. You are becoming that person. It is not just that you are declared holy, that's justification, you become holy, sanctification. It is the whole process of the Christian life. The way you might think about it is this, God became a man so that he could offer his life for us, and we, in response, offer our lives back to him. It's the pattern of scripture. He gives us holiness, and then we respond saying, Jesus, I offer my holiness back to you. You, You've heard that song so many times, take my life, Lord, and let it be consecrated all to thee. I want you to have this life. We don't just receive holiness, which is true. We actually become and begin to become holy through this process of sanctification that will one day be worked out in eternity. This brings us back now to Martha and Mary, where we started. Through faith, you are invited to sit at the feet of Jesus and to remain in God's presence. That's the invitation for you, that if you will, if you repent and continue to have faith in Jesus, every day is lived in the presence of God. Which means as you face life this week, what trials are you facing? What anxieties do you feel? What is causing you a sense of, I have to prove myself to prove my worth? I have to do a certain thing to make sure that others notice me, to get acceptance, to be finally counted as worthy and worthwhile. Where do you feel perhaps overtaxed, overworked? Where do you feel struggling? This life feels too much. Know the gentleness of the good shepherd who has carried you into the presence of God. Sit at his feet like Mary. Recognize his goodness. On the other hand, this week, what choices do you face before you? What agency do you have? Where do you find yourself having to make decisions and respond? At those points, recognize the Holy Spirit is here in your life and the act of choosing decisions, the act of offering your decisions up to God itself is shaping you. It is shaping you to become someone who dwells eternally 
the presence of God. Something you can't do on your own, something you need his Holy Spirit for. Lord, who may dwell in your tabernacle? Who may come into your holy presence? The answer is this, only the one who has faith in Jesus, the true worshiper. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.